What's going on, everybody? It's Smiley's Garden. We're here with the organic takeover. Finally getting another one back, so sorry for the delay, but uh, we got a nice uh, guest here tonight, uh, Nick from uh, Rooted Leaf Agritech, and uh, let you say, introduce yourself here, Nick, and uh, if you would, give them the website to uh, where they can find some information about the company and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Hey, everyone, <clears throat> this is Nick with Rooted Leaf. Agritech, you can find us online on Instagram at The Rooted Leaf, and then definitely check out our website, rootedleaf.com. Um, make sure to use discount code EAGLE20 if you want to get 20% off your uh, cart after tonight's conversation, which hopefully is going to give you some better perspective on what we do here at Rooted Leaf Agritech. But the gist is that we're manufacturing carbon-based fertilizers that fit directly into plant metabolic pathways. And I think we're going to get into that uh, subject matter tonight about how exactly that's uh, achieved, you know, and why that's so relevant to things like terpene and cannabinoid biosynthesis and plants. So thanks for having me on. And I'm looking forward to a nice conversation. Yeah, most definitely, man. Um, no, and uh, and I do want to give you a shout out too. And uh, I know you've been on with Hoda Herb on, on his Thursday night show, Growing with Hoda Herb. Yeah, what is it called? Hoda's uh, Grow and Talk, right? Or Talk? Yeah, Hoda Herb's Herb. Grow and Talk. Growing yeah, yeah. and then uh and i know you were on last night too so if anybody had other information i'm going to try to cover some different stuff and different topics so um kind of i guess piggy tail piggybacking a little bit off from from last night's uh talk you had you had said something about um rubisco and you had mentioned how that plays a role in photosynthesis and you had made a comment about the efficiency of Rubisco. And I'm just kind of um, curious because I know looking into it myself, there's a, an opposite side of, of where what that enzyme can actually react with oxygen. They call that like photorespiration, but there's not a lot of talk about that. And I'm not sure how big a deal that is or what kind of role in the balance of everything that, that might play. But Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, without like the best way that I can describe it uh, without getting into a layer of detail that like really uh, is, is perhaps a little bit too much for tonight's entry-level discussion is you can think about like, you know, just in general, in terms of nitrogen metabolism, nitrogen as an element, uh, <clears throat> you know, because the atmosphere is very rich in oxygen and aerobic microbes tend to use oxygen as a sort of a, you know, a terminal uh, acceptor of electrons during uh, things like oxidative phosphorylation. So normal metabolic, mo metabolic cycles, oxygen is involved uh, in these processes. And so in most cases in the environment, you're likely to find elements, or I should say plants are likely to find elements in their uh, fully oxidized forms. And certainly this is true of carbon, CO2, sulfate, or I'm sorry, sulfur in the form of sulfate, SO4, phosphorus in the form of phosphate, PO4, uh, and then nitrogen in the form of NO3. Uh, and so, you know, nitrate is a, sort of a predominant species of nitrogen, uh, by and large in soils, um, partially because of the action of aerob aerobic microbes, as I mentioned, but also because there's just so much oxygen in the air that it, <clears throat> it tends to keep things fully oxidized. And so plants have to kind of work with this. And so they're used to taking up fully oxidized forms of these elements. And so when we're looking at things like nutrient uptake pathways or nutrient assimilation pathways, uh, particularly in the context of nitrogen, we're looking at things like, you know, nitrates going to uh, ammoniacal forms 
of nitrogen and then into amino acids and then from amino acids onward to other amino acids, you know, because it starts at glutamate and then it goes to other amino acids and so on and so forth. So, like a building block or whatever. Yeah. Builds up. And uh, I guess what I was looking into is, um, is, is rubisco uh, normally happening like throughout the time, like throughout the day? So it, if photosynthesis is grabbing CO2, but if there's a limit of CO2 so, and it can't grab that, but it's still receiving light, is that a time when it might go through some of that? No, no. And, and the action of rubisco is actually one of those things that's super tightly coordinated. Uh, you know, think about it this way, like if you, maybe I didn't complete the, the thought entirely there. Sorry, this is going to be a, a sort of a complex topic. And so I'm going to find myself kind of venturing off topic a little bit and maybe talking about some other things that, you know, they, they, they are complex, but definitely feel free to ask the same question twice if you feel like, you know, we didn't quite achieve the the ultimate response the first time around. But uh, Rubisco is one of those enzymes that it has, uh, it, it's given rise to, it's a little bit enigmatic. It's sort of questionable to some people and it sort of really separates people depending on how they look at it, right? On the one hand, it's an enzyme that is like the number one engine that's used to convert carbon from the air into more soluble forms of carbon that work their way down in the soil and happen to quite literally provide the carbon substrate for all microbes and all plant, uh, uh, fungi that form relationships with plants in the soil. <clears throat> this sort of enzyme also happens to have a slow turnover rate. <clears throat> and so it, it operates fairly slowly relative to other enzymes that are present inside of plants. And it sort of seems to have a low specificity in the sense that it either carboxylates CO2 or it tries to act on oxygen. And I think <clears throat> two things are true. If you look on the back end of what happens uh, after uh, rubisco acts on oxygen, you see in the sort of shockwave afterwards that the reduction power necessary to assimilate nitrates is generated. And, you know, without getting too far into the specifics of that, let's just kind of say in summary that whenever Rubisco misfires, so to speak, that that misfiring actually generates the reduction power necessary to convert nitrates, which uh, as it so interestingly happens enough, C3 plants like cannabis like to take up nitrates. They seem to do well with nitrates in certain loads <clears throat> that might kill C4 plants and CAM plants. And again, what we're looking at here with the overall, like, what is a plant? You know, that question can be fairly summarized <clears throat> by looking at C3 metabolism, C4 metabolism, and CAM metabolism in the sense that those are more or less the pathways that plants are going to take to process carbon out of the air. And the interesting thing, again, about C3 plants and the way that Rubisco happens to misfire and act on oxygen uh, instead of uh, CO2 and generate a two carbon sugar as opposed to a three carbon sugar, you know, in the wake of that chemical reaction also is generated the reduction power needed to fix nitrates, which also helps explain how plants have adapted, C3 plants in particular, have adapted to take up a nitrogen source that most other organisms would prefer to avoid because it otherwise takes so much reduction power. It costs like 18 ATP to convert uh, nitrate into an ammoniacal form. This is a huge challenge for any microorganism. This is also specifically, if you look at some of the relationships like rhizobia, for instance, and 
the relationships that those microorganisms form with legumes, the reason that nitrogen fixing microbes and certain species of plants like legumes are capable of existing in the types of synergistic uh, relationships that they are is because nitrogen costs a lot of ATP to process from its fully oxidized form into a biologically relevant form like an amino acid. This is no joke, it takes a lot of energy. <clears throat> you can be a specialized organism that focuses on just this. And then on the flip side, plants do this remarkable job of harvesting fully oxidized carbon in the form of CO2 out of the air and then converting that into a more, more reduced insoluble form like sucrose or sugars. And microbes thrive on sugars. You know, fungi love certain types of soluble carbon and sugars because they can convert those into fatty acids that form cell walls and help establish the mycorrhizal network. You know, so there's a lot of value associated with these symbiotic relationships where fungi, like our buscular mycorrhizal fungi, will pass phosphorus onto plants knowing that this sugar ribulose phosphate is typically the turnover of that sugar like a motor is typically the step limiting factor for how quickly a plant can turn over sugar in photosynthesis. And they say, hey, plant, here you go. Here's some phosphorus that you can plug into that pathway and remove the path or I'm sorry, remove the uh, limiting obstacle there. And so the plant is capable of producing more sugars. And lo and behold, the plant happens to pass about 20% of the sugars down to the fungi, which eliminate the uh, otherwise, what is the limiting factor there, you know? So, yeah. No, and, and I know it gets deep, I guess, kind of where it would, so what I had in my head, and maybe I was thinking about this wrong, is just kind of, uh, like, and you, you had kind of touched on it too, but it's trying to balance everything so that you're getting proper photosynthesis. And in my head, what, when you said that it was efficiency, I'm just thinking like, so that must mean, because I think of like a light saturation point, right? When, you're, when your plant can't process the light as fast, then it has to kind of deal with that light somehow. And that's kind of what I was thinking I was leading you into is uh, like, how is it, you know what I'm saying? Like, how is it dealing with that when it can't go through the process of photosynthesis when, and it's still getting... Yeah. <clears throat> well, so let me, let me put it to you this way, that the ultimate goal of photosynthesis is to convert light energy into chemical energy that... Uh, you know, ultimately the reduction of carbon is the thing that plants at large in terms of just the plant kingdom, you know, plants are uh, defined by their ability to convert carbon into any number of molecules. And if you look at species specifically, they happen to do certain things very well, like cannabis plants happen to be masters of terpenophenolic chemistry. You know, cannabinoids are half terpenes and half <clears throat> derivatives of the phenylpropanoid pathway. You know, all of tolic acid, for example, is a is a ketone, it's more or less a, a fatty acid. And that forms the ring structure after it's cyclized uh, through an oxidative process. Um, and then that is joined with a, with a terpene that's derived from a slightly different pathway. But cannabis plants specifically more or less are masters of this chemical pathway that gives rise to molecules about a hundred or so that have been discovered in cannabis plants so far, these cannabinoids. They're about 80% carbon by weight and all of the monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes those are 90% carbon by weight. And so really what we're looking at is like carbon is a limiting factor for the productivity of these plants. If you give them more carbon as a substrate that's available to act on, they will definitely produce more of these compounds. That, that, that is the, the purpose of what, that's what they're trying to achieve. You know, that's why these growers set up sealed flowering rooms and have 
a thousand, fifteen hundred, maybe sometimes even two thousand or more ppm's of of uh, CO two. You know, they're trying to get rid of some of these limiting factors. But the way that I would look at it too is that if the plants are the leaves are like solar panels, they're just trying to harvest light energy from the leaves and then convert that into chemical energy. And once they have that chemical energy, they can then partition it or they can spend it like chemical currency out of a bank account, you know, and part of that chemical currency goes, goes towards reducing, let's say nitrates that come up from the xylem, <clears throat> because there is this task of having to like balance you know, how much mineral load is coming up in terms of EC, how, you know, how much are you feeding your plants? Uh, that has to be balanced against the light intensity because that, that's where the power originates from is the more intense the lights get, the greater the overall capacity of your plants to convert certain nutrients into something that's actually useful for them in, in terms of like biology, you know, amino acids and proteins and things like that. You need the energy of the light to power these processes, right? And then uh, factoring into that is the inevitable gargantuan uh, macronutrient carbon, you know, and I always like to tell people, take all your NPKs, take your CalMags, take your sulfur, your micronutrients, all of the elements, all 17 of them, combine them together, multiply that number by five, and you still have more carbon in the plant overall. And if you start to look more specifically at like, hey, what do plants do with nitrogen? Or, hey, what do they, what do, they do with phosphorus? Or like, hey, what do they do with potassium or magnesium? The common answer between all of them is, they use it to process carbon somehow, you know, more specifically, it could be like they use it to capture carbon. They use it to transfer the energy associated with carbon. They use it to store carbon. They do, a, they do something with carbon. That's, that's ultimately the purpose of it all, you know? Yeah. So, um, and, and, and I think the, the, the point that I was trying to get at overall is that when the light energy comes into the plants, they have a variety of different pathways that they can split that light energy to that are all very tightly connected and they all talk to each other. And this is sort of the, the thing that I think a lot of people overlook, not only about Rubisco, but about plant metabolism in general, which is like, you know, let's just do this thought experiment here. The plant just has this opportunity to pass the electrical energy, you know, let me back up one step here and say, the problem with these elements at large is the same, more or less. CO2, NO3, SO4, those all have oxygen. More, uh, at the end of the day, the, the plant has to deal with that oxygen in more or less the same way. And that is what I refer to as reduction power. That reduction power is generated when the plants are exposed to light and they happen to pass that light energy through a series of protein complexes like chlorophyll, which take advantage of that light energy and happen to convert it into chemical energy. And that chemical energy generates the reduction power to do things like make ATP and make NADPH, you know, at the end of this electron transport chain, for instance. But along the way, this plant is like a giant supercomputer. It knows in the back, for example, like, hey, part of this uh, electron energy needs to go from ferrodoxin to this enzyme called ATP sulfurylase that is telling me that there's a lot of sulfur coming up and I have to reduce the sulfate, you know, or on the flip side, there's a nitrate reductase enzyme that is uh, signaling that it needs, uh, you know, a certain amount of electrons to fulfill a, uh, a nitrate reduction, for instance. And certainly the part of the way that Rubisco quote unquote misfires uh, provides the reduction power needed for nitrate assimilation. Um, because it otherwise represents about 20 to 25% of the overall energy that plants consume throughout the day anyways. 
And so Rubisco misfiring more or less 25% of the time seems to be this evolutionary trade-off that makes sense. Like if you really look at the back-end chemical mechanics of what happens versus if you just look at the cost of like how many ATPs are required in terms of reducing fully oxidized nitrates into their ammoniacal forms, you know, there's a certain amount of chemical energy costs associated with it. And if you kind of look at the dynamics of it at the end of the day, Rubisco is actually perfectly optimized. If you perceive it from the perspective of, Hey, maybe photorespiration is something that gives see-through plants an inherent advantage to take up nitrates, which kind of helps explain why over the past 96 million freaking years, these plants have been sort of adapted to take up a form of nitrogen that most other organisms prefer to not take up because it's so oxidized. They're just like, nah, I don't deal with it. C3 plants on the flip side are like, well, I have this motor here, it's called Rubisco, and it'll balance the carbon to nitrogen uh, load <clears throat> there. And the point I want to make for people real quick too is that when you take up nitrates and when cannabis plants, C3 plants, for example, take up nitrates, they use the power of the sun to convert that nitrate into something that ultimately at the end of that metabolic cycle has to meet a reduced form of carbon, an organic acid skeleton called 2-oxoglutarate in order to make an amino acid. Because even if hypothetically, it's just say you have the reduction power, you're a plant, you have a reduction power that's necessary to convert nitrate into an amino acid. It doesn't matter if you have the power if the reduced carbon isn't there, right? And so as a plant, you know, like, hey, before I can reduce the nitrate, I have to have reduced carbon. And so these two are hardwired, they're connected to each other. The plant understands, like, I have a pool of fixed carbon in the form of organic acids that I can pull from that have already been reduced properly, you know, in the right format. And I have this pool of available nitrates that's coming up through the xylem. And the plant's always trying to make sure that these two are not like spinning out of whack, but more on the flip side, they're spinning in unison with each other. It's always trying to balance this because at the end of the day, a lot of people don't understand. It comes down to a very simple problem. NO3, CO2, they both got oxygen. The plant has the same problem. It requires reduction power in both cases. The enigma is that nitrates require reduced carbon. So the plant has to reduce the carbon in order to be able to reduce the nitrogen. This is why Rubisco exists in a balance. And this photorespiration thing is actually a way for it to generate reductive power to convert nitrates in balance with having that available carbon supply to actually generate a meaningful compound like amino acids at the end of the day. Cheers. Cheers, man. No, and I like, I like that. And I just kind of want to caveat that when you're saying reduction, like I know this, this topic of like redox and oxidation <laughs> reduction potential, but, but in my head, it, it kind of, I guess the way I think of it is, is in that electron flow, right? Like to reduce something, you're adding energy into it. When you oxidize something, it's releasing the energy, correct? I mean, is that a basic way of thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oxidation is, I refer to it as oil rig always. It's oxidation is losing electrons, reduction is ga gaining electrons. And I think that there's, um, you know, maybe a little bit of, there's like this really uh, hard to talk about gray area when it comes to certain things like soil uh, chemistry, for instance, because the focus always seems to be on pH. But, you know, guys that are familiar with like electron transport chains and what plants do with photosynthesis, like even the basic premise, like, hey, the plants use energy from the light, they use electrical energy, they use electron energy to 
like do this monumental task that's otherwise uh, highly specialized and doesn't really exist in nature. You don't find fungi doing this. You don't find microbes doing this. Fungi are really good at decomposing organic residues that plants produce, but they're not really good at using the power of the sun to convert CO2 out of the air into a soluble form and then do all kinds of crazy trippy shit with it. You know, like plants are definitely masters of carbon chemistry. Uh, so, you know, that being said, they're, they're kind of the whole basis of what plants do is defined by the electron <laughs> flow more or less, you know, by capturing this electrical energy. And I think that people often overlook the importance of redox potential in soil systems because redox potential is basically the flow of electrons more or less, let's say, and pH uh, is the flow of like, you know, acid-base reactions versus reduction and oxidation reactions. And, you know, to kind of better understand the, the system at large, I think you'd have to look at like, uh, I guess in plants, you know, with reactive oxygen species, you'd have to look at those at large as not just like byproducts of photosynthesis that are accidental, but rather on the flip side that, you know, plants are fully well aware that they're trying to capture light energy in the presence of oxygen, which is a perhaps the most dangerous combination of all and explains why no other autotrophic organism has, you know, really developed such extensive systems to be able to do just that. It's a very dangerous environment, you know, because in the presence of uh, light, oxygen um, be can become energized to the point of actually causing irreversible, irreversible damage to uh, the DNA of plants and plant cells. It's like a very, very catastrophic thing, this whole concept of reactive oxygen species. Isn't that a technique they actually use for cancer cells too? Like they they zap them like that, kind of, so to speak? I, I think so, yeah. There's there's like uh, certain types of light therapies that are involved, you know, and it, it's all, all sort of on the basis, uh, you know, at least from plants to, to my understanding, you know, um, that... Uh, you know, oxygen is uh, obviously oxygen can react in some pretty chemically interesting ways. It gets its own little uh, class of reactions called oxidation reactions because it's such a good, you know, does such a good job of this oxidation phenomena that uh, it, it kind of comes to define itself in, in that category. Um, but certainly it's something that plants want to avoid because what they're trying to do is generate reduction power they can be used to make things like monoterpenes. And if you go on Google and type in monoterpene, you see that they're all C10H16. So the important thing to realize there is that there's no oxygen inside of a monoterpene. Then on the flip side, it's fully reduced, quote unquote. In, the, in other words, it, it has a lot of hydrogen uh, and there's no oxygen. And so this, this conversion between fully reduced and fully oxidized requires a great deal of work for the plants. And that uh, large amount of work basically involves taking fully oxidized CO2 out of the air in its monomer form, where there's just a single unit of carbon, single atom of carbon, and then converting it into something that's maybe 10 or 15 or 20, depending on if we're talking about mono, sesqui, or diterpenes like cannabinoids, for instance. Uh, those are between 80 to 90% carbon by weight. And the rest of it is going to be more or less hydrogen and cannabinoids obviously have a little bit of oxygen uh, inside of them as well. So, um, you know, it, I, I guess it's interesting to see from the perspective of like, hey, plants have to start off with something that's a single unit of carbon and then it exists in a fully oxidized state and they have to chemically reduce it 
and somehow make that useful. And this whole balance between reduction and oxidation happens to define interactions across entire plant kingdoms. Like I like terpenes, I like cannabinoids. Uh, and I, I just can't imagine the, the amount of precision required for a plant to produce uh, something in an otherwise oxidizing atmosphere and oxidizing environment, you know, a compound that's more or less fully reduced that affects the nervous system of, you know, a species that has been on a separate evolutionary trajectory for billions of years. Like to me, the whole thing is just mind blowing. Like it, it's, it's truly uh, magical to say the least. So yeah, no cheers, doubt. To that, cheers, <laughs> cheers to that. So um, I guess, uh, Basically, the, the point is, is that it takes a lot of energy to make a lot of these terpenes and, and content. Um, one question, I guess, that kind of is going to stem off this. When you talk about going from a monoterpene to a susqua and diterpenes, you're, you're increasing the number of, cannab or of carbon in that molecule. So you go from 10 to 15 to 20. What I'm wondering is, is the 10 a precursor to the 15 or are they like totally constructing these separately? You see what I'm getting at? Because yeah, 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 yeah. And ter ter terpenes are definitely interesting uh, substances in the sense that there's so many, there's such a diverse number of terpenes and sort of like the biosynthetic logic is actually based on what is more or less like a repetitive sequence. You know, it's more or less at the end of the day, isoprene, which is like a five carbon building block that has like electrophilic and nucleophilic, um, you know, points where it's connected. Basically it has these uh, ties that happen to repeat over and over and over again. And depending on the action of other enzymes that come in and do further modifications, they may uh, kind of like custom tailor or fine tune these substrates. Um, you know, ter terpenes are interesting, I guess, in, in, in the sense that there's two distinct pathways, first off. Um, and these pathways have been shown to have a lot of crosstalk. So when you're talking about isoprene biosynthesis, which is the basic five carbon building block, that oftentimes, um, and I think they're called hemiterpenes as well, in some cases where you have like more or less dedicated substances that can also function like intermediates if they're introduced in the right enzyme substrate complex. But in, in, in a lot of cases, like you have this broad specificity more or less, you know, you can take like a hemiterpene, which is a five carbon, uh, you know, isoprene basically, and you can combine that with a monoterpene in order to get a sesquiterpene. And in some other cases, you may get like a carotenoid that's formed and then the carotenoid is cleaved and you have two diterpene skeletons that can further be modified into, you know, compounds that end up being sesquiterpenes or something like that. They're the breakdown dynamics and the buildup dynamics are actually pretty diverse and pretty complex. It gives rise to a fairly extensive conversation on why there happens to be over 70,000 known terpenes, you know, like that's a very large number of metabolites that, that kind of come out of one pathway, so to speak. And they all start off as a basic five carbon building block and, and more or less the logic behind the, the biosynthesis of the 70,000 or so compounds is, it, it seems to be more or less pretty simple and straightforward, but there's all these uh, complex and fascinating like tailoring enzymes that come in on the back end and, and do all kinds of crazy stuff that uh, 
modifies and further condenses or adds other functional groups uh, or, or somehow like in the case of cannabinoids, for instance, there's phenolic compounds that happen to be joined in at some point of this, uh, you know, and, and I believe the specific pathway is the methyl erythritol phosphate pathway um, that produces the, the terpene backbone for cannabinoids. But at some point, like you got to, you know, figure that the, whatever comes out of that terpene pathway in cannabis plants actually ends up folding into a different pathway and an enzyme basically takes like two substrates and acts on those together and ends up making these cannabinoids. So it's like the, you know, the child between a terpene and a cannabinoid. Yeah. And when you say pathway, you're just talking about the process that's going through. Is that kind of what you mean? Or Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the phenylpropanoid pathway, for example, it gives rise to such a large variety of different compounds. I think there's over 10,000 different compounds and it really is just like a blanket statement to say, uh, you know, the pathway that gives rise to these molecules or these metabolites specifically. And, and, you know, like I said, we, we want to be maybe more specific, like cannabinoids are terpenophenolic substances, for example, and terpenes are maybe their own thing. And, um, phenolics are maybe their own thing as well, but when you have plants that specialize in producing the convergent pathway of compounds between the two of them, it's worth kind of pointing out like, hey, cannabis plants do this one thing remarkably well. Uh, and, and I guess that kind of thought echoes in, in my mind, in the back of my mind a little bit, because in the other episode that we were talking about sulfur and, and the um, importance of sulfur in cannabis plants, you know, a lot of people were mentioning and I've heard a lot of people talk about it recently about the, the importance of sulfur nutrition in cannabis plants and how it ends up contributing to the aroma and you know while all that stuff is uh, very true uh, and it does you know, certainly don't want to take any significance away from it uh, the point is ultimately large that we shouldn't forget that by and large you know cannabis plants are masters of terpenophenolic chemistry and they, they, they process sulfur compounds in an interesting and unique way but they're they're not really like specialists in that particular field. So um, yeah, we want to look specifically at the way that cannabis plants get to a place where they have the ability, the chemical equilibrium, the dynamic and all the stuff necessary to synthesize compounds like terpenes and cannabinoids that fill in these very small resinous trichrome heads in cannabis plants because they end up packing on so much weight. I mean, there's so much weight associated you know, with terpenes and cannabinoids, they can ultimately define a significant chunk of the, the flower itself could end up being like styrofoam in comparison to just how dense the inside of your trichomeds can get if you just execute properly. You know, anything above 30% cannabinoids and above 5% terpenes is, is, is going to represent, uh, you know, at what, 10 to 15%, let's say, of the overall dry mass of the plant. And it's crazy if you really think about it, you know, it is why it always has blown my mind, especially when you hear guys say like, well, I had 40% cannabinoids and that's over a third, you know what I'm saying? Like it's over a third of the dry weight of that. And that is mind blowing. I, I think it's cool that you related into that too, because I've always kind of heard that where like the oil actually, so I don't know, like a garden that's say trying to boost yield or whatever, like you're, you're going to gain a lot more weight and the end result and the dried flower by increasing oil production or, or, you know, I mean, the amount of carbon that it can, can collect. Right. I mean, that's basically 
because yeah. it's a different kind of mindset on some of it. And uh, and I know you said you had a uh, I know you, you um, rooted leaf is a carbon based nutrient. And this, this the one question that uh, I know has kind of got kicked around a little bit and and like, say, the living soil community. So if if I'm operating in a, you know, a living soil system, what is there a benefit to trying to add in some of these carbon based nutrients? Is, and is it going to be kind of different from the mindset of like, oh, I'm adding in, you know, salt based stuff or whatever kind of maybe how it react would react different i don't know yeah absolutely and, and i think part of it comes down to like we were trying to get at earlier is like if you look at nitrates uh which happen to kind of like when we're talking about salt-based fertilizer it's really easy to just talk about nitrates because everybody knows nitrates and salt-based are kind of like interchangeable so it's low-hanging fruit for us to to talk about you know ultimately the point of um nitrate chemistry is that it requires the reduction power necessary to convert that into an ammoniacal form so you know really what we're looking at doing when we're talking about um, fertilizing living soils is contributing to that more or less that reductive power that the ability that whatever complex ecosystem has in the soil to be able to better harvest the macronutrients that we put in them because you know let's not forget besides the, the the plants having their own needs for phosphorus that the cellular membranes of uh, microbes are made up of phospholipids and fungi themselves depend on small amounts of phosphorus as well. They too have DNA and it's a constituent of nucleic acids. And so I just wanna make sure we count every small little bit, even though it seems largely irrelevant that the whole point of stimulating living soils is to ultimately provide nutrition in a form that costs very little to actually process. And what we do in that sort of broad stroke is to attempt to get or encourage beneficial microbes to grow. Because if we have healthy soil that has these beneficial microbes and has these beneficial fungi, then giving them a free energy source, uh, what it does over a long period of time is it builds larger and larger colonies that can sustain more and more complex activity because we happen to provide this sort of balanced system. And that's you know, one thing going back to the salt-based fertilizers, you know, having a sort of a bag of like calcium nitrate, for example, it requires reductive power. So in that sort of sense, you, you have to sort of focus on pH to some extent because there's no carbon inside of, uh, uh, you know, calcium nitrate. It has zero carbon. It's just a, an organic mineral salt. So you only have one real dimension to look at the equilibrium from which is you have to focus on pH, which is a lot of times why you have these like very narrow pH ranges. When in reality, pH and EH are more or less a complex interplay. You know, the redox potential doesn't form or the, the ability of this system, this biological system to transfer electrons around and therefore oxidize thing, things does eventually cross over into the realm of affecting acid-base reactions. You know, you see this type of stuff happen uh, all the time, I guess, you know, like, you know, the, the water splitting phenomena in plants, they happen to oxidize oxygen, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself. But, you know, that's kind of the internal under the hood dynamics. Yeah, sounds of, weird. <laughs> yeah. Oxidize oxygen. <laughs> well, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, they find a way to take electrons out of water. And, you know, last time I checked, they released the oxygen as a byproduct. So, 
I don't know how else someone wants to chop that up, but uh, they they uh, they release the oxygen as a byproduct and they take the electrons away from oxygen and say, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and when they're doing that, like they're basically taking that hydrogen and that's so like one question that's kind of been bugging me in, in, uh, and I did mention this one to you, you led into it, but with pH, it's percentage hydrogen. And um, on a soil test, when I, when I get my soil test done, there's a, a part called the base saturation. And in that, at the very bottom, there's a part called exchangeable hydrogen. And, and that number is like, I don't know, 10 to 15 or something is kind of the ideal range. So they, there's obviously, they don't want it to be zero, but, but I'm just curious, if, is exchangeable hydrogen just kind of like what you're talking about, like energy in the system? Is that a good way to think of that is yeah you know i just i guess part of um part of it is i'm not an agronomist and, and so i don't you know i wouldn't really have an opinion on, on what the actual burnout means but what i can tell you is that from a chemistry standpoint that when we're looking at biological systems that this sort of redox potential or eh the transfer of electrons <clears throat> does uh, in a lot of cases form the basis for pH or acid-base reactions and how protons ultimately transfer. Um, and so it's one of those things where I feel like there's a gap, there's sort of a gap to connect to better understand because, you know, if you looked at, I forget what the name of it right, right now is, but there are charts that exist that show basically pH and EH of each element and they have that overlaid so you can kind of see on one, on one hand of the graph is the EH as it, you know, the voltage goes from zero and all the way up and then pH, it goes from most acidic to most alkaline. And it kind of shows you like, what's that balance, you know, between something that's, you know, got a pretty low oxidation or pretty low redox potential versus something that has a very high redox potential versus the pH itself. And that does actually seem to inform uh, nutrient transfer. And, and, and so what you do is like th these graphs individually, like typically you, you find one for phosphorus, for example, you'll find one for potassium or magnesium. Um, and you overlay them and you kind of see like in the context of a biological system, like a microbe or a plant, for instance, you know, plants have enzymes, dozens of enzymes that can sort of act on, uh, nutrient uptake, you know, pathways specifically like plants know, for instance, organic acids like citric acid, they can use and, and really produce them partially to secrete them from the roots because, the citric acid sort of outcompetes phosphates in the soil. It has a stronger grip on stuff around phosphorus that phosphates typically bind to. And it says, get out of the way of phosphate. I'm going to go ahead and grab this calcium or I'm going to, I'm going to grab this, uh, you know, potassium or magnesium or whatever the, you know, the, 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 the uh, locked out element happens to be. And, and thus in this way, it sort of displaces phosphorus and makes phosphates a little bit more available for plants to take up. And so this is something that, you certainly see across all plant species, you know, in the case of phosphate deficiencies, they'll produce organic acids and secrete them out of the roots in an attempt specifically to capture more phosphorus. They kind of, they're aware of this mechanism, you know, and this is ultimately to say that plants have these mechanisms, these enzymes, these tools that they can use to kind of sense what's going on in the, scent, the, the soil chemistry. And part of that soil chemistry sensor is the transfer of acids and bases and protons and hydroxyl groups and I'm sorry, hydrogen and hydroxyl groups and things like that. And then on the flip side, uh, through these complex biological systems, there is the transfer of electrons. 
and it's it's even more important. And again, the, the connective tissue to connect, you know, the dots for most people hopefully should be like, hey, just think about what plants do. They harvest electrical energy from the sun. And if you just think for long enough to process that this is all electrical energy, these are electrons flowing through a system, that's ultimately just as important as, you know, like happening in the canopy of the plant as it is happening below the soil in the rhizosphere, this flow of electrical energy uh, ultimately I hate to say it, but for lack of a better phrase, you know, it is king to the flow of acid-base reactions. And in, in certain redox states, you have these potentials that are expressed and biological systems that happen to inform nutrient uptake pathways almost in their, you know, entirety. So they are very, very important things. Yeah, the flow of electrons for sure. Yeah, because I've, I've actually heard it described like that is uh, like pH is, is the inverse measure of protons and then EH is the inverse measure of electrons. And that was kind of the, Olivier Hussan did a, a talk on it and that was kind of the difference in it. To me, that kind of made some sense because I'm just thinking like in chemistry class, like how you know, the electrons in the ring or whatever, and you can actually, those can move along. Some of that's kind of where it's like, I'm just trying to get some of the light bulb moment of like, you know, you just said it's getting triggered. It's capturing that electron from the, the energy provided by the sun. And it's moving that, you know, to do plant growth, to do, you know, soil growth, all the biology down there is, so this is a really amazing thing, you know, like just to move. Yeah. And, and ultimately just kind of like converges. If you just think about like a mechanical system, like an engine or like two, two wheels are connected by one axle and they kind of rotate, you know, they're, they're powered by the same more or less combustive effort. So there's a lot of these processes in plants that generate energy as a result of these processes happening, the photosynthesis process, you know, the sort of electron transport chain, I should say, uh, the Calvin Benson cycle. And then there's some of these pathways that break triggers down like glycolysis and the pentose phosphate pathway. And you just kind of like, you know, the, the ultimate thing that I've learned is to, to appreciate and understand that plants are always trying to conserve and recycle energy. You know, they're like the masters, not only masters of carbon chemistry, but they're really, really good at balancing thermodynamic equilibriums. They're really good at conserving energy so that every move they make, every uh, piece of energy that they spend can get recycled or it can kind of feed back into something or other. Um, and I think a really good way of looking at that is like this concept of EH or these redox states within cells. Um, you know, plants are, are ultimately harvesting energy from the light to use to chemically reduce carbon, but there is this process by which they chemically reduce oxygen and they create hydrogen peroxide and they create reactive oxygen species within their own cells. And these reactive oxygen species function like signaling molecules and it's this, it's this large concept referred to as the redox state of the cell, right? You have a certain amount of like electrical energy flowing through the plant. And the plant is very well aware that it's growing in the presence of oxygen. Like it's very well aware that its environment is rich in oxygen. You know, it deals with it on a daily basis and the roots uh, respire just like human lungs do. So uh, it has this innate understanding that oxygen is kind of just built in or baked into the process of what it's doing. But it nevertheless, takes energy from the light in the presence 
of oxygen. And the last thing that I want to do is pass that electron energy or have it dissipate down the wrong pathways because that generates these reactive oxygen species. And depending on how excited the oxygen gets, you get certain things like, you know, singlet oxygen, you get superoxide, you get hydrogen peroxide, uh, and then you have all of these enzyme complexes in plants that kind of like deal with this damage. You know, you have like carotenoids, for instance, that, that do a really good job of soaking up singlet oxygen. And they're like these, you know, giants, uh, you know, they have these conjugated double carbon bonds on their, on their skeletons, so to speak, that when this excess light energy hits that framework, it dissipates as heat. And it allows the plants with a physical safeguard, more or less, that allows them to quench this excess light energy. And, and again, keep in mind, chlorophyll, it's like, okay, I'm a pigment. I'm going to take an energy from the light. So if the light's too intense, there's nothing chlorophyll can do about it. It gets really, really excited as a result of this, uh, you know, energy coming in. There's nothing you can do about it. So <clears throat> in these overly excited states, in certain cases, the plant has a host of uh, compounds and enzymes and mechanisms that it can use to safeguard itself against this oxidative stress. But uh, while complex and vast and impressive these systems may be, I think that also to the same extent, it's true that plants are utterly aware that they can capture this energy and they can store it within them and they can create a redox system of balance within their, their cells internally. The plants have this internal uh, state where they're balanced between a reduced state and an oxidized state. And the more you look at some of these antioxidant systems, like the glutathione system is a good example. You know, you find glutathione in a balance and when the plants are really healthy, you find a lot of glutathione in every cell is more reduced than it is oxidized. And when the plants are really stressed out, if you subject them to high light intensity or oxidative stress or biotic stress or any kind of drought, salinity, et cetera, any kind of stress that makes them freak out, you find most of the glutathione in the plant is actually in an oxidized state. And what that means is this is sort of like the fingerprint or this is the echo of a plant that's indicating that it's having problems dealing with a large amount of stress coming through its system that otherwise more or less maintains balanced. And the ability of the plants to balance their, you know, state between reduced and oxidized. I mean, keep in mind that during the lights being on, they're always in a state of being open. So they're always accepting this energy coming in. So what they're trying to do is create a buffer they can act to allow them to dissipate this redox energy over a long period of time. In a grow room, you may turn the lights on and you may turn the lights off and it may happen at the snap of fingers, but the buffering systems that exist in plants, these redox buffers, allow the plants to dissipate that light energy and its consequences or its benefits over a much longer period of time by storing that and passing it and transferring it back and forth with these protein complexes that are Kind of talk to each other on the back end basically at the speed of light and they transfer these reducing agents or these oxidizing agents back and forth and in some cases it's interesting because when the plants have access to you know oxidative energy they can do things like detoxify themselves from excess sulfur they can take the sulfite and there's an enzyme called sulfite oxidase that exists in all plants and it can take uh, excess sulfur and then oxidize it into sulfate and allow it to get transported out of the plants if there's a little too much of it going on. So, so they can deal yeah. with it. Yeah, that's, uh, um, I guess, kind of one of the other thoughts that are things that kind of goes in my head is so like, 
plants are the only the only time they're really like bringing energy into the system is through the process of photosynthesis so when like when lights go out how i mean where where is the source coming for those that plant to stay alive basically because it's gonna have to like for a cell to stay alive it needs a certain amount of energy right like it's got to kind of constantly get energy isn't that well, yeah, but so, I mean, think about it like step by step. Let's just say that you and I are, are an electron that's coming in from the sun and we happen to hit one of these photosynthetically active pigments. What's the journey of one of these electrons like? And the ultimate question is, are, are there enzymes or are there protein complexes in the plant that can store electron energy? In other words, can we balance the redox state of a plant overnight to maintain more or less in equilibrium to allow like even if the lights turn off for instance you know the, the real question would be are there complexes or proteins and plants that act like batteries you know that allow that electrical energy to get dissipated uh overnight you know and, and so that that's where you would start looking at certain you know systems within the plants to start to figure out more specifically like in in these um you know, like cytochrome B6F and some of these other complexes where maybe chlorophyll exists or some of these other photosystems, like how is that electron energy getting passed back and forth? Because again, the whole the whole point for the plant is it wants to uh, spend like in, just in, in strictly in terms of thermodynamics here in, in terms of creating an equilibrium, the plant it has a vested interest in maintaining a pool of energy that translates to like stored energy, you know, the more stored energy or the more buffer energy that it has in its reservoir or its bank account, the better it's doing overall. And so as the energy comes in and out of the plant, really what it's trying to do is convert all of that energy into, you know, all of that light energy into chemical energy. And along the way, you have these processes that allow the conversion of chemical energy. I'm sorry, the, the conversion of light energy to, to perhaps happen a little bit more slowly than just the lights turning on and off. And then on the flip side, once the plants have the chemical energy that's stored, they can funnel that chemical energy down pathways that continue, like you said, to take advantage of some of the stuff. And those are the pathways that are like glycolysis, for example, you know, they split the sugars uh, and more oxidative pathways because you generate a lot of ATP uh, from that. And then pentose phosphate pathways, you know, those are responsible for forming the, the backbones or the organic acids of terpenes and cannabinoids. So you know, part of it is from the plant's perspective, it's like, okay, it's stored the energy. And then how many times can that energy be, you know, recycled or passed in, in, in cycles that generate more energy or uh, produce compounds that are necessary to deal with whatever's coming in from the xylem? You know, because think about it like valves in a motor, you have this thing called a citrate valve inside of plants. And when the lights are on, for example, you have a lot of this reduction potential coming in yep. you know from the light energy what happens is the citrate valve more or less exists in an open state the energy that's coming in produces reduced carbon species that work their way out in the form of a compound called 2-oxoglutarate and that is combined with nitrates that come up from the feed water to form amino acids and the so plants depend if you go a long, no i'm just saying if you go a long period of time like like there's a recommendation to do like three four days of dark period at night but it, but if you were to do that say you lost power right and, and the plants went a, a little bit longer in that 
I mean, they, they need to have energy to stay alive. Right. I mean, ultimately they're, they're either having to take that out of stored energy until that kind of reserve goes is because don't they store like starches and, and different things too versus just sugars? Well, so I, I think an answer to your question may exist in a study that was done in Australia, uh, I believe in around tw- late 22, 2021. So maybe six months ago at the longest, um, some researchers basically mapped out the proteins that they found in flowers, cannabis flowers that were late stage, maybe between week five and seven, they mapped those proteins out against the ones that they found in trichome stalks. And finally, the third category was proteins that they found inside of trichome heads. And really what they were doing for was screening for the types of activities that were associated with these various structures. Because they were looking inside of the trichome heads and saying like, this is a pretty specialized compartment within the plants. There's gotta be something you know, specialized going on here. And certainly they found more or less enzymes that were in higher proportion in the trichome heads than they were in, let's say the flowers or the stalks. But when they overlaid the three of them, they were able to kind of determine like, what's the connective tissue here? And they ultimately determined that the flowers themselves at large produce sugars through photosynthesis. Obviously the flowers are green. So they have a lot of chlorophyll. This chlorophyll participates in you know, the electron transport chain, and it produces a lot of these reducing agents, the NADPH, and it produces the ATP that feeds into the Calvin-Benson cycle, and that sort of, you know, does its thing, produces, you know, sugars through rubisco and all that good fancy stuff, and those sugars from the flowers, ultimately, once that's done and the flowers have done their thing, that sugar gets moved out through the trichome stalks. And the enzymatic activity of trichome stalks, the overall number of enzymes that are active are like half of that compared to the trichome heads or compared to the flowers, which seems to suggest a fairly limited function, but nevertheless a highly specialized function, which is like a highway in the middle of a desert. You're trying to facilitate a transfer of substrates for building blocks or raw materials from a productive area like the flowers out to an area like the trichome heads where a further screening of the proteins and enzymes happens to reveal that there are a lot of enzymes involved in terpene-related pathways, terpene synthesis-related pathways, cannabinoid pathways. Uh, A remarkably high number of enzymes uh, revolving around glutathione and sulfur metabolism for its uh, antioxidant potentials, like I'm kind of talking about recently. but, you know, it just, it, it kind of lets the researchers see what happens to these sugars once they're produced to the, from the flowers, they work their way through the trichome stalks up to the heads, they get broken down, these sugars get broken down. Um, keep in mind, the benefit of the sugars is that most sugars are really soluble in water. If we're looking at sucrose, I think the solubility of sucrose is like 2000 grams for every 1000 grams of water or something like that. So it's like a two to one ratio almost. So for plants, it's like, hey, if I'm trying to shove carbon somewhere, I have all this water coming up from the roots and I have all this carbon in the air and I can make a carbohydrate where I can shove twice as much sugar as I can into water. And you know, for plants, it's a very good system. It's a very good dynamic that works. So they happen to transport sugars, which are soluble forms of carbon, extremely soluble forms of carbon, up to trichome heads, where a lot of these enzymes like cannabinoid and terpene synthase enzymes Uh, say great thanks for the sugars and they participate in these networks these networks are like complex networks of enzymes that pass substrates 
back and forth to each other. In some cases, it's just one directional, like with the terpene synthase, they kind of just go one way, but they ultimately, you know, in this series of networks end up producing and secreting these compounds like terpenes and cannabinoids out into these bulbous trichome heads. And the concentration of that, as I mentioned earlier, is incredible. Like for people to understand, like, you know, 10 to 15% of what you're looking at from, you know, two to three foot distance, you can actually look at with a microscope, you know, to like kind of put the two together and realize there's that much density, there's that much biological activity, there's that many enzymes and chemical reactions happening. It's happening so fast. It requires so much energy. Uh, all that stuff is remarkably complex, to say the least. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's, uh... um, kind of shifting gear, there's one other thing I was kind of curious about. This might be shifting a little bit, but um, like there's like when certain types of, uh, I guess, IPM or integrated pest management, they talk about like uh, uh, SAR or um, stimulating certain pathways in the plant to get a response, right? So there's these stimulating, so like aloe vera is one with, uh, um, that's talked about pretty often, but but I want, I'm just kind of curious if you could explain like what that actually means when, when, so I spray a plant down with aloe vera, like what does that mean that it's stimulating this pathway in the plant? I think a good way to look at it is if you have a broad spectrum of compounds that are produced in nature, and I don't just mean in plants, I just, I mean like with uh, fungi, they produce chitin, they produce chitosan as constituents of the cell wall. We're talking about crustaceans from the ocean do the same thing. This is why certain things like crab shell meal and chitin derivatives can be used as elicitors too. Uh, all of these compounds, including willow bark extracts, black walnut extracts, uh, so on and so forth, what they do is they represent a very large number of metabolites that are produced in nature. And when you spray them on a plant like cannabis, what happens is take whatever compound you want like this, and it's going to end up working its way down a funnel. And this funnel will converge on a distinct number of pathways, like the jasmonic pathway, the salicylic pathway, the abscisic acid pathway in the plants. It kind of depends on the type of stressor we're talking about, but um, these uh, hormonal pathways in plants regulate responses to certain types of stressors. And there's a lot of crosstalk between them, even if you're talking about just lowering the temperature in the plants, for example, or if you're talking about introducing a uh, an insect, let's just say you, you wanted to see what the effects were on a hormonal expression level if you introduced spider mites into your garden. Well, you'd find these stress-associated hormones, and, and more specifically, you would find that some of these hormones, um, although most of them are activated, the ones that get activated in certain levels that are higher than others are the ones that are associated with biotic stress. Or in the case of abiotic stress, if you're just talking about changing the humidity or the temperature or the light intensity or you know, some non-biological uh, problem for the plants. Um, you know, you're looking at a response that ultimately gets funneled down to, a, a, again, the, the same half dozen or so pathways, but the execution of that and how it comes out of the back end of the plant is something that still is uh, subject to a lot of debate because, you know, researchers are, are trying to figure out, like, how do plants perceive such a great deal of signals from their external environment? You know, all of these insects, there's so many insects out there in the world. I mean, look at it all these crustaceans and 
crazy stuff coming out of the ocean, all of the volatile compounds produced by microbes, all the crazy stuff fungus or fungi are trying to do in the soil. Some of them aren't your friends. Some of them are your friends. Like plants have to deal with crazy stuff, like millions and millions and millions of different compounds. Uh, so the ultimate question is always like, how do they process all this stuff out of the natural world and figure out how to deal with it? And as a, you know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's like half a dozen or so comp, uh, distinct pathways, salicylate pathway, jasminate pathway, abscissate pathway. Those have crosstalks obviously with auxins and cytokinins and gibberellins and like this whole, the whole plant responds, you know, the whole plant responds. And when you have energy diverted from primary metabolism, you bet auxins and cytokines and other things that typically draw that reduction power and draw that electron energy away from secondary metabolite biosynthesis. They, those get adjusted for sure. And in a lot of ways, these auxins and cytokines can themselves, you know, to, to a certain extent, kind of help participate uh, in the responses by helping spread the right chemical signals and the right messages. So uh, like, like I mentioned, the whole plant kind of comes together and responds, but you would be looking specifically at a certain number of pathways like the salicylic acid pathway, the jasmonic acid pathway, um, which was named after jasmine plants, interestingly enough. And then one of the lesser known pathways, abscisic acid pathways, uh, you know, help the plants deal with heat, stress, light intensity stress in particular. Um, abscisic acid is actually created uh, sort of as a byproduct of oxidative damage. You know, we were just talking a little bit earlier about how chlorophyll is kind of very interesting pigment that exists because it captures energy from the light in the presence of oxygen, which is a really dangerous idea uh, given, you know, the nature of our uh, atmosphere on this planet. So, you know, plants produce carotenoids to help soak up some of this stress that is otherwise associated with these pathways. And uh, if the stress becomes too intense for a carotenoid, these carotenoids sort of, it's very interesting and sort of beautiful in symmetry that carotenoids are almost engineered structurally to accept this excess light energy and they break at certain points in their skeletons. And where they break in their skeletons, they produce these compounds called apocarotenoids that actually downregulate plant growth. They tell the plant like, hey, it's time to slow down. You know, uh, photosynthesis may be becoming too intense. And when the carotenoids break down, you know, the oxidative stress is starting to get real, real intense for plants, but it's this remarkable ability and symmetry that the plants have to sort of combine the, the carbon-based, like the, the perfection that they achieve with carbon-based chemistry against the oxidative stress that comes as a result of like the, the very nature of what they do is they grow above ground and they happen to take an energy in the presence of light and uh, the oxygen that's in this atmosphere is very, very high in relation to CO2. And so this enzyme Rubisco has to like deal with the fact that there's a lot more oxygen than there is CO2 and somehow maintain this equilibrium of shifting reduction power towards carbon or nitrogen or sulfur. And then all three of those have to get balanced against amino acid bios. And this is like the craziest quantum supercomputer you could ever think of on the back end is doing all this stuff in real time. And the plants don't have a choice. It's not like they, you know, they, they, they can't just choose to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to move to an environment where I think there's going to be more phosphorus in the soil. So let me go ahead and do that. They have no choice. They literally have to make it work. And again, the, the toolkit that they have and the amount of specificity that they have and the precision that they have to achieve all of the needs that they need to sort of fulfill is just astonishing. It really is. 
Yeah, no doubt, man. I mean, even, yeah, just the process of photosynthesis is mind blowing. Like, that, you know, that it's just, it, it's like almost, yeah, combustion in reverse or something, you know, like I, I kind of think of it like that just because like what you were talking, how like, you know, if, if there's excess energy, it has to deal with that in some way, like through the carotenoid paths and, and different things. And it is almost like a, like a bad explosion causes damage, right? Like, and, and if it's not gone through and dealt with that energy, somehow it can cause damage to a cell kind of thing. And it, in my head, that's how I'm picturing it. You know what I mean? Like it's got, so like when in the electron transfer chain, it's got, it's, it's getting excited by, by the sun ray at some point and it's working that electron through these different reactions down to the end result of making it more stable in a in a carbon base you know what i mean it's making it more stable in that sugar you know and and then from there it it like atp is is used to put together to make the the carbohydrate or the sugar as well and that's kind of like atp is a more reactive form so that so it's got to put it in a more um less reactive structure so that it can transport it throughout the plant and then you know what i'm saying and in my head i'm seeing it arrive almost like on a truck you know get trucked down to the growing tip or wherever and then it's kind of broken back apart at that point from from the carbohydrate back down to the atp and, and it's a more reactive usable form again is that kind of correct or is that a little bit too big of a yeah yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the with the added caveat that in the electron transport chain, there are some privileged processes, privileged enzymes that get to come up and tap into the electron transport chain and say, hey, paradox, and I need to, you know, borrow the, these electrons so I can reduce the, the sulfates coming in. And if you just look at the mechanics of some of the stuff, I think you you get to be surprised looking at like, how similar plants are to car motors in terms of like their basic function. There's a spark, for instance, that comes in from the sun and then there's an air fuel mixture, right? An air fuel ratio, you have to balance your mineral load with your carbon load. A lot of, you know, high intensity uh, commercial grow operations end up getting into a mold where they feed salt-based fertilizers and they have sealed flowering rooms because they want to dump a bunch of CO2. I mean, if you had a sealed flowering room and you weren't adding CO2, I think you'd be leaving a lot on the table. But, you know, the point is ultimately that you have this like air fuel ratio present basically. And I just mean air in the, in the presence of like carbon in this oxidized form as CO2. And then you have fuel as fertilizer and water coming in from the xylem. And as it works its way up, the leaves have these specialized tools with rubisco to process the carbon and funnel it down. So that's your air fuel mixture and you have the spark. And then obviously you have you know, that combustive process happening in the plants. And then there's maybe a little bit of byproduct from that. And a lot of that byproduct, as I mentioned earlier, plants are really good at reusing it. So even if, you, if you're looking at these basic processes, like how rubisco works in plants, for example, in that Calvin Benson cycle, um, you know, a lot of it is just like, keep in mind, it's a cycle, you know, Calvin Benson cycle, and you have the citric acid cycle. And a lot of these things, they are cyclic, like cyclic uh, electron flow in plants, you know, with P680 and P700. Um, a lot of this stuff is meant to happen in a cycle because plants do a really good job of reusing the energy 
to the best extent that they possibly can. And I think the really quick best synopsis for that is to say like, hey, they spend a lot of time and a lot of energy producing sugars that require reduction power, but then they put them inside of these pathways that break them down through oxidative pathways and they yield energy in that process. You know, organic acids, for instance, can be uh, fully metabolized and the terminal metabolism is CO2 and H2O. So it represents what plants started with. Or on the flip side, those organic acids can be shuffled back into pathways that produce sugars. You know, and so like these substrate pools that pass back and forth, back and forth, all of this stuff is meant to balance the reduction and oxidative potential of plants across the whole biological spectrum of compounds they produce. We're not just talking about like, you know, electrons that are like floating around and, and, and trapped in, you know, some form or this form or that form. I'm talking about like how amino acids are catabolized and how the ammonia is, is fed back into certain pathways, uh, you know, in the presence of low nitrates, for example, uh, and low nitrogen overall, you know, the plants can find really clever ways to recycle and repurpose nitrogen in conjunction with rubisco doing its thing because you need you ultimately need to create balance in the system overall you know if we're talking about like a car motor for example if we're talking about uh enzymes and plants and these biological systems we got to keep in mind that the plant has to create a system that's balanced because if there's no balance in the system then things quickly start to get overly oxidized or overly reduced and that will lead to catastrophic failure of the whole system that that's why you know, if you look at like diffusion limited enzymes, there are these class of enzymes that operate basically at the speed of light. They're like incredibly badass. They happen to do work faster than it can, you know, physically be done, so to speak. And a lot of the processes that diffusion limited enzymes are tied into happen to deal with managing and regulating reduction oxidation states in plants because those processes have to be fine-tuned in real time to match or meet the, the rate of electron flow coming into the plant. So they quite literally have to operate at the speed of light in order to be optimized. You know, trippy, very complex stuff. No, some of that is, it's just kind of mind blowing too. Like I've even heard some like uh, discussion on, um, I'm gonna say it wrong, but uh, how chlorophyll can I almost act on a quantum level too. And I would say it wrong, but just the way that light moves through it, it's like, doesn't lose any energy so it's like almost instantaneous kind of but yeah, it, is, it is great um shit I'm losing. I just lost it we're talking about a lot of cool shit there so no worries know, right? yeah we kind of did dive down some um but no like uh i did have it it was right on the tip of my tongue too Man, I'm drawing a blank here now. That's big squirrel for me, but um, no worries. One of the other notes I had written down, and I guess it kind of does play along with it. I had a better way to lead into it. Is basically what it was. But with carbon skeletons and and uh, the whole discussion of how like you know we're capturing carbon through photosynthesis, putting it into a sugar, moving it around, and then but carbon is used in cell walls and carbon is a structural part of the plant too and and some of these you know some of these uh compounds that you were talking about terpenes and those those are all different parts of the carbon put together and uh, i don't know i guess kind of just if you wanted to maybe give a little light on what a carbon skeleton might even be 
Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think the the easiest way to kind of get into this topic at large is to say that um, you know plants do a very good job of achieving a broad number of tasks using a broad number of enzymes and proteins and things like that. So, you know, even if we focused on amino acids or fatty acids or something like that, there'd be like this, you know, vast and extensive lists of things for us to talk about and very specific amino acids and what they mean and all that stuff. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, um, it's important for us to realize in another light or in a different context that most of the nitrogen we put on our plants is going to get used by the plant to either produce chlorophyll or rubisphenol. So despite all this like vast, complex, really fascinating stuff, in reality, it narrows down to actually something that's quite simple, which is that the plants will turn this nitrogen around into chlorophyll or rubisphenol, and that represents easily more than 50% of all the nitrogen you will ever apply in your plants. Um, and so, you know, this kind of comes down to sort of the same premise of carbon metabolism. You know, cannabis plants are C3 plants. Well, what does that mean? It means that they take carbon out of the air and the way that rubisco specifically works for them is to produce a uh, six carbon sugar that's pretty unstable in a short period of time and it quickly converts into two of these three carbon sugars and hence the name C3 metabolism. And then those sugars, you know, ultimately from there get passed down a series of pathways that can, you know, create um, more stable forms of sugars. For instance, there's enzymes that can kind of come in and catch these intermediary metabolites along the way and pull them out of the chain, so to speak. They do have to contribute back to these processes because a lot of these cycles feed themselves. So I think you have to produce like six of these. You have to, you have to fire rubisco six times in order to get one sugar out of it that you can actually use or, or some number like that. You know, don't, don't quote me on that, but it's, it's something like that. You know, in other words, to say that a large portion of the actual processing power goes right back into the a closed loop cycle, you know, in, in, in uh, circumstances and metabolic circumstances where the plant is doing really well with the substrates, that valve may actually open up a little bit more and allow more of those byproducts to feed in um, to the export products at large, like amino acids, for example, you know, because amino acids, if you really think about it, when plants take up nitrates, when they metabolize nitrates, when they're done processing nitrates, those get converted into amino acids. And then from there, the, the, the job or the function of that form of nitrogen is a little bit different, right? But in terms of chemical conversion, the plant first has to convert it to amino acids. You know, and same thing with the level of simplicity, there's just one amino acid that gets formed and there's one organic acid residue, it's called 2-oxoglutarate and it makes glutamic acid or glutamate. And that, you know, gets combined with that ammoniacal head. And then there's deamination reactions. There's uh, transamination reactions that occur where these amine head groups are moved around, passed back and forth. There's a substitution of organic acid skeletons. So it's like Lego blocks that kind of get pieced back and forth. But again, with the amino acids, we're starting with just one. So it's like, it's pretty simple. And then again, with the nitrogen, it's like it goes in one of two places. And both of those enzymes participate in carbon metabolism. One captures the carbon out of the air and the other captures the energy from the sun so that you can actually do something with the carbon from the air. So it's like remarkably simple at the end of the day. But what I'll say about organic acids is that as they get metabolized, um, typically those organic acids come from sugars that are produced by the plants. You know, again, sugars are pretty soluble in the uh, phloem sap. So when they work their way down from leaves to the roots, there's all kinds of 
fascinating stuff that can happen, you know, enzymes that are in all kinds of different compartments and organs of the plant and, and you know, different areas of the cell, they can uh, potentially act on that phloem sap, depending on how it gets, how some of that good stuff gets transferred across the plants. And this is kind of, you know, back up one step. This is where a lot of the, the primary growth hormones can kind of dictate to plants uh, how to partition those carbon reserves and carbon supplies, because in times of need for secondary metabolite biosynthesis, those plants will partition those carbon supplies and move them down this pathway, like the phenylpropanoid pathway, for example, which, you know, unfortunately terminates with metabolites that are not really that useful for like the continued purpose of primary metabolism. You know, they're more useful for things like predator, a uh, predator defense, or, uh, you know, warning off you know, pathogenic fungi or microbes or highly specialized compounds that, you know, otherwise don't contribute to this like otherwise fairly simple process of like, hey, let's put all of our nitrogen and rubisco and and uh, and chlorophyll, and it won't it be great if we don't have to produce alkaloids to ward off these bugs that want to bite our sap and suck out all of our sugar from the phloem? You know, like God, if only plants didn't have to deal with any stressors, you'd really find out what they were capable of, you know, achieving in terms of primary metabolism. But uh, needless to say, that all this stuff is balanced internally in the plants, that they know when there's going to be a reduction power that's associated with like, hey, it's time to grow more versus some of that reduction power goes to, hey, it's time to ward off this fungi that's trying to come in and, and steal everything that we've worked so hard to. Well, it would be a lot like, uh, like for you or me, if we, if we came down with like, say a flu or, or I guess whatever, a cold, you know what I'm saying? Like your body, you get tired, right? And you're sleepy and you want to lay down because your body's using energy to fight off or ward off this illness right isn't that kind of the same idea yeah i mean i i think without knowing too much about the you know specifics of human illness i will say that yeah plants the thing that they struggle against with pathogenic fungi and microbes is that a lot of times those microbes want to come in and and draw too much carbon and not contribute enough back to the process you know um again the thing with like nitrogen fixing microbes for example is the just the the, the nature of nitrogen as an element uh, aside from biology, just the chemical nature of nitrogen is that it requires a lot of reduction power to process into a form where it can be condensed into an amino acid. So a lot of times with legumes, what you'll find is like the plant is basically highly specialized in taking carbon. Like a woodworker that's been working wood for 40 years is going to work wood better than a metal worker that's been working metal for 40 years, you know? And so this is like, when, when, imagine you have a project where you want your project to be like half wood and half metal you're probably going to have to have some collaboration between the two of them, unless you want the woodworker to work his ass off and make a half off metal, metal piece, or on the flip side, you want the metal worker to come up with, you know, some half ass wood piece. So microbes and plants in a lot of circumstances, the relationships can be defined as such that the plants are really good at scrubbing carbon and producing organic acid skeletons. And maybe these microbes that fix nitrogen, for example, uh, have really badass tools that they can use to scrub nitrogen out. Uh, even though they exist in the soil, they have these really efficient tools and they can um, draw down nitrogen gas from the air or they can process nitrogen in its various forms and they can convert that ultimately to ammoniacal forms. And, oh, hey, there's this plant that's passing along an organic acid residue. I wonder if I can combine that with, you know, this nitrogen and make an amino acid and then pass that back to the plant. And a lot of times you find these types of 
symbiotic relationships. And, and maybe it occurs to some extent with microbes actually passing amino acids back to the plants. I think to another extent, uh, microbes can even pass just, uh, you know, the ammoniacal forms of nitrogen and those get taken up by the same channels that recognize potassium um, because they're monoprotic and, uh, you know, there would be room for them, so to speak, in those channels to actually recognize ammonium and to take it up. And then from there, it would be possible for those legumes to, um, you know, take their organic acids, which predominantly are malate dominant, malate species dominant, and use those in cycles where they can break that down and use that as the basis to make amino acids. Um, but again, with the highly specialized you know, relationships, ultimately it doesn't matter if you're a plant or if you're a microorganism in the soil, like there's a chemical cost associated with converting nitrates to ammoniacal forms. And if you can work with other, you know, forms of, or other species of microbes and fungi in the soil that have their specialized tools, maybe you guys can kind of work together and build a whole system where everyone has to work as, as you know, little as, as necessary in order to achieve the maximum possible benefit. And this is where I think you find balance in ecosystems with, with plants being masters of carbon chemistry and maybe fungi being masters of decomposition chemistry and to some extent phosphates, you know, scavenging chemistry. Then you have microbes being experts in nitrogen fixation, for example, and production of antiviral compounds specifically and so on and so forth. So there, there's all these complex reasons why it makes sense to have synergistic and beneficial relationships, you know? So I just want to touch on something. So plants can take up amino acids through through the root system. Is that, I mean, they're, they are taking up a, a molecule like that. And because the discussion comes, the reason the question is, is that uh, I guess there's been some statements made about like, in elemental form, right? It's it's always taking up the same thing, which will duh if it's you know in the atom, an atom of nitrogen is the same as an atom of the other. But but in a comp, it's actually taking up a molecule though, right? Even in in nitrate, that's a NO kind of molecule or and and whatever. But but it can actually can a plant actually take up a, an amino acid, so it's already kind of reduced in that form. Yeah, yeah, and I think that the number of enzymes and protein complexes associated with amino acid metabolism in plants are not as vast and complex as those associated with processing nitrates, which, uh, you know, even if it's not vast and complex, that still represents a great draw of energy away from the plants. And these nitrate reduction, I'm sorry, nitrate reductase enzymes uh, may be fairly conserved with, with a good reason as to why exactly. But, um, you know, yeah, plants will take up amino acids. It's not as common of a food source. But the thing that I'll say about plants is that they, you know, plant ultimately at the end of the day is just a, a giant water filter. And they do a really good job of filtering water out. And they're so good at filtering water out that they can even scrub individual elements like potassium and magnesium and calcium out. Uh, and they can use the energy of the sun to convert those elements into like more useful forms that help them process carbon you know, more efficiently, basically, and capture more carbon out of the, the air by making thicker cell walls. And calcium is a great example. Um, helps plants make thick cell walls so the plant grows bigger, so it can capture more carbon. Great, you know, like all these elements, magnesium, same thing. You put it in the center of chlorophyll, awesome. I can capture light energy and I can reduce carbon. And then magnesium is also at the center of rubisco. So it quite literally 
facilitates the conversion of insoluble CO2 into soluble sugars, which you know represents this transition from useless carbon to the very first forms of biologically relevant carbon, magnesium sort of sits at the center of that. So it's like all the elements you give plants, plants just want more carbon out of it at the end of the day. They want to capture more carbon, they want to store it, they want to shove it in various places, they want to you know, build more root matter out of it. They want to build more terpenes out of it. They want to like, you know, have massive stores of carbon, like buffers basically in reserve in these pools, like organic acids that exist in transitionary states. Uh, and the more, you know, just in terms of like thermodynamic equilibriums, uh, organic acids just represent a pool of carbon that's been sort of fixed successfully by the plant that are in transitionary states. Some of these organic acids come from deamination reactions as a result of breakdown of proteins. For instance, some of them come from the breakdown of sugars and primary metabolic pathways. Uh, and these same pathways give rise to terpenes and cannabinoids, you know, things like that. But when, when the um, sugars are broken down and the organic acids are formed, these organic acids are uh, remarkably good at plugging into basically anything that plants need to form you know, uh, simple organic acids, low molecular weight organic acids, like acetates, for example, and citrates. I mean, they're ubiquitous in nature. You know, citrates are so ubiquitous, they even have a name after their own cycle called the citric acid cycle. And acetates are one of these things. If you look at it, you have this compound called acetyl coenzyme A, and then you have the most common and abundant auxin produced in plants is indole 3 acetic acid. So you quickly realize acetates and acetic acid residues are the most abundant metabolites produced in all of nature. They're produced in every cell more often than any other metabolite. And then, you know, quickly thereafter, you find other organic acid residues. So think about all that stuff going on as existing in a transitionary state. And if we can help create or transform, you know, a state where all of those organic acids are being funneled towards terpenes and cannabinoids, cannabis plants, then we're going to end up with plants that perform really, really well and end up, you know. Right. And this, will kind of, this will kind of lead into another question. And like what you're talking about is uh, in organic acids and the carbon acids. So like I'm a big fan of Dr. Faust and, and he talks a lot about humic acid and fulvic acids. And one of the things he kind of always mentions is that they're carbon fractions so in my head, I'm picturing these carbon molecules you're talking about being all kind of busted into pieces, like, you know, I mean, like Legos, so to speak. And these, all these fractions kind of make that up. And, and then he talks about it, like fulvic being the lightweight carbon fractions and, and humic kind of being the heavier weight ones. And I'm just picturing like fulvic being shorter, kind of less number of carbons in each one of those fractions. Is that kind of a, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, that's part of the definition of fulvics. I think another part of the definition of fulvics is the absence of like methoxy groups or aromatic, uh, you know, compounds present in the structure. I think fulvic acids predominantly are aliphatic. So you're going to find that they have these long chains with functional groups like hydroxyl functional groups present uh, in carboxylic functional groups. And so what they do is they have like in terms of like the, the, the bio, like the, the functional, the, the ratio of functional groups to the molecular weight. If you look at what groups are associated with chelation activity, for example, or water bridging activity, um, 
what you find is fulvics are like more biologically active. They have a greater redox potential than of humic acids. But the structure of humic acids, also because it's insoluble and because you have these methoxy groups and more arom aromatic non-functional groups, um, you end up with something that ultimately contributes really well to soil structure, like the physical three-dimensional structure of the soil. You want to be rich in insoluble humic, you know, because it ultimately turns the soil itself at large into a huge buffer. And the buffer is going to be dictated by humic chemistry, which is just phenomenal for plants. And, you know, to kind of back up one step too, just think about humic substances, you know, where they originate from. It's plant matter. So these are organic acid residues that have been slowly trans transforming over, you know, potentially millions of years as a result of not only oxidative chemistry because of the, you know, the Earth's atmosphere, but in certain cases, you have microbial activity that sort of guides the precipitation of organic matter as you get compost, that composts over millions and millions of years. years the, these, uh, these compost fractions eventually get whittled down to such a precise and refined form that they have a high degree of functionality for a low molecular weight. And this is precisely why they're so valuable in agriculture because they're like these really, really perfected uh, fractions of carbon molecules that you know took hundreds of millions of years, potentially in some cases, maybe tens of millions of years uh, to get whittled down and refined to this point where like that power to weight ratio is super high. They don't weigh a whole lot, but man, do they chelate really well. And man, do they transfer a lot of these you know minerals back and forth to plants and they kind of fit into all that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's plants that have been composted for a very, very long time, if you really think about it. Yeah, they, like uh, Faust kind of mentions it as the end result of decomposition or whatever. Like it's decomposed as far as it can and as much. And in my head, in my head, it's it's been reduced as or oxidized as much as it could, and the energy's been taken from it, right? Like, it, is that kind of correct too? And because when it, things are decomposing, they're kind of like in my head, they're deconstructing those cells, and they're using the energy there putting it together right oh yeah and I, and I think you know more specifically the quality of humic acid may be defined by the degree of oxidation i really like the work that dr faust uh did with bioag and certainly bioag as a company at large the, the fulvic that they make their full power and their full humix those are two really really good products that I think are, are sort of set apart in the industry by the fact that the humic itself is not oxidized, which is something that derives, uh, which defines Leonardite derived humic acid. And that the fulvic acid itself does have, a, a, you know, great specificity or ability to chelate minerals like calcium and magnesium. You know, you can actually take that full power and you can actually use it to run a chelation reaction. Whereas if you compared those two products to other competitor products, you may find, you know, those products have benefits and certainly there's a lot of good fulvic and humic products out there on the market. But the point is ultimately that they may not be actually the non-oxidized fraction like the humics are in full humics, or it could be a mineral chelate in a fulvate rather than a true fulvic acid fraction as is true with full power. Um, you know, I, I don't have any skin in the game, so to speak, in terms of fulvic acid and humic acid manufacturing. I know BioAg is a company very well. Um, 
they do make a very good product. And I will say that as far as a, what is truly and should be rightly considered a fulvic acid fraction, uh, I haven't found another true fulvic acid on the market. I have found other fulvate mineral complexes that I think work well. Um, but, you know, the point is at large that the fulvic acid is different from fulvate in the same way that organic acids are different than their mineral, uh, you know, counter balances like potassium citrate versus citric acid or, you know, calcium acetate versus acetic acid. You know, there's big differences between the molecules, just like fulvic acid versus something like, you know, calcium fulvate or sodium fulvate or uh, magnesium fulvate or whatever the case may be. So. And uh, speaking of chelation, um, this, in, I'm just going to kind of describe to you how I picture it, but it's been described as like a claw and, and I've heard it determined term like that. But in my head with what's kind of happening with chelation is that that is somehow preparing the nutrient to be taken through the cell wall easier. So I guess like like in my head, it's kind of uh, attaching on and almost like um, balancing out whatever, you know, whatever imbalance was there so that it can pass through. But I, I'm just wondering if you could give a little bit of an explanation of like how like calcium, for example, can become chelated and why that's going to become easier for it to be uptaken. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'll try to keep this in layman's terms because when you get down to like the nitty gritty specifics of what chelation is, as far as like polydenticity and multiple ligands and things like that, you know, you're going to find some purists out there that have their, you know, specific ways of describing it. But I'll try to keep it in layman's terms. So, like chelate, as you mentioned, there's the Greek word kilos, which means claw, and I think it was refer reference to a lobster claw. And it was just this uh, visual way for people to perceive that a molecule could be built around an element, you know, and you have this ability of a molecule in three-dimensional space to maybe capture an element that maybe has the ability to be captured at two different spots. Like you have um, monovalent cations like potassium, or you have divalent cations like magnesium and calcium, meaning that there's like two spots where some interactions may occur. And so plants over time have developed this understanding, like, hey, I can build one molecule that wraps around this thing like calcium and magnesium and lets me capture both of these otherwise reactive sites or reactive spots. And so, you know, chelation ultimately just, I think uh, in layman's terms is used as a reference to describe a process that's used to make elements more available by protecting their charge. And this charge protection phenomena occurs when you're looking at elements that are oppositely charged. Like you have calcium, for example, let's just say it's positively charged and you have phosphates in the soil which are negatively charged or sulfates that are negatively charged. And what happens when you have these uh, opposite charges is they kind of come together and they make insoluble precipitants in some cases. You know, calcium sulfate is drywall. Uh, I don't like these guys that are recommending the use of calcium sulfate as foliar sprays and things like that. To, I just, I have a big problem with it. I think it just represents a really primitive understanding of of uh, nutrition at large. But, you know, the point is ultimately calcium sulfate is insoluble. Calcium phosphate is insoluble. And really the chelation, the name of the name of the game in chelation chemistry and sciences, well, how do I take this calcium and prevent this adverse reaction from happening? Can I attach the calcium to a molecule that would allow 
it to pass through a biological system without worrying about adverse effects associated with some of these other elements like phosphates, for example, in the soil. And so chelation chemistry has been very useful in terms of like identifying how do we deliver additional macronutrients as these macronutrients become, or even micronutrients in some cases, you know, as they become limiting factors for crop productivity. Um, you know, the one thing I will say too, is that there's a little bit of like uh, the kind of like fuzzy edges, the fine line, so to speak, is there's like interchangeable terms. People use chelation and complexing. And chelation is a reference to this, more or less this three-dimensional phenomena that occurs with multiple bonding sites. And there's, there's like a spatial thing that's happening here. There's a, you know, some, something distinct happening. Complexing can be better thought of as amino acids with these side chains. And these side chains just branch off in sort of one direction. They're capable of forming uh, sort of kind of more, more weak uh, relationships with certain minerals and elements like phosphorus, for example, can be attached uh, in certain forms as a residue on amino acids. So it can kind of like hijack this little side chain, you can make a quick little weak handshake with these amino acids and sort of find a transport channel because the amino acids are highly soluble and they get picked up and the phosphate's like, great, I'm along for the ride. Um, so, you know, that, that's, uh, that's complexing, I guess, versus chelation in a, in a nutshell without getting too specific. No, that, that's very helpful and it makes sense. And, and like, I guess some chelation agents can be a lot stronger than other ones too, right? So that would mean it's going to hold that element a lot in a lot tighter fashion. Is that kind of the way? Am I understanding that correct? Um, you have what are referred to as stability constants, which just refer to the amount of chemical energy that's going to be required or the redox potential that, that holds the bond together. So you have certain molecules that are synthetic chelates like EDTA, uh, and, and you have them basically going up in certain orders of magnitude. EDTA is, is uh, an example of one synthetic chelate that's used in the fertilizer industry, but it, you know, there's some debate as to how effective it is, but then you have other ones like DTPA that may not be used as often. They're more used in like the paper manufacturing industry where you need to introduce hydrogen peroxide and bleach wood pulp to transform your paper and make it white, but you don't want that peroxide to get reduced. And so you put chelating agents that will precipitate in with metal cations that would otherwise induce you know, these types of adverse reactions if you're making paper, right? So I'm, I'm talking about an industrial process here, but this is the nature. If you look at some of these synthetic chelating agents like DTPA, this is the origin, this is the nature of their use, their original use is some of these like hardcore industries where you're trying to oxidize the shit out of something and you need these synthetic chelating agents to have this high affinity to scavenge and precipitate, you know, to, to sort of protect the charge of these metal cations that would otherwise inhibit peroxidation from occurring. Um, so, you know, that being said, uh, EDTA and DTPA and uh, EDDHA and some of these other chelating chelates uh, work their way out of paper manufacturing and paper mills out into the fertilizer industry where they've been used with more or less mixed results. What I'll say about natural transport pathways in plants is that if you look at some of these metabolites, as I mentioned, acetates and, you know, to some extent citrates, uh, in a lot of cases, those are capable of making what I would argue is a chelate, especially calcium acetate, for example, and magnesium acetate. These are forms of calcium and magnesium that 
are very, very relevant for biological pathways in plants so they can take that up. The acetate itself provides the carbon skeletons that are needed to power everything in all of plant metabolism because you know acetates are the most abundant. And then obviously if you have citrate forms, those get fed back into the citric acid cycle or, or they can be further you know, acted on basically is the point. On the flip side, if you use something like EDTA, for example, the plant can't process that EDTA. What's going to happen is if the calcium, if you give it like calcium EDTA or iron EDTA, you have a claw around the iron that goes like this. Well, what happens if the plant removes the iron from here? The claw still wants something. You can't, you can't just take it out and expect the plant to like, oh, ah, there's, there's, a, there's a powerful void that needs to get filled. And a lot of times if that, e, if that uh, synthetic chelating agent um, if the plants are trying to detoxify and process it out, they have to do what's called an exchange to maintain that charge balance. They have to sacrifice some element in order to keep that EDTA uh, charge, you know, balanced basically, because otherwise it's going to rip some cation out of the cell wall or something like that as the plants are trying to detoxify it. So the point is with natural chelates that are biologically relevant for plant pathways, there's no energy expenditure associated with it. And that the actual chelating agent itself is broken down into anything at all. It's like Lego blocks. It can be used for literally whatever the plant needs in any context, primary or secondary metabolism. Synthetic chelating agents on the flip side require energy to break uh, the, the actual um, bond that holds the element together. And then on the flip side, cannot be used in primary or secondary metabolic pathways. So the plants have to find something to reinsert back in. And if you're trying to take calcium out because you need the calcium and you're like, shit, what do I put in? You know, that can compensate the charge balance on calcium. Like the plants struggle, you know, with it. The plants struggle with detoxifying EDTA. EDTA doesn't break down. It doesn't really accumulate. It gets detoxified out of plants. They don't want anything to do with it. They want it out of the systems. But uh, most biological systems reject it. And so you find it a lot of times accumulating in like, you know, shores off big cities and things like that. It's kind of unfortunate. A lot of people don't realize they have a synthetic chelate that, you know, a lot of agronomists and people like that will sell. They're like, oh, it works great, you know? And then you look 30, 40 years down the pipeline of its metabolism and you realize like, hey, this isn't actually going anywhere. Like none of the organisms that are native to this planet care about EGA. None of them want it. Where are we putting it out there? None of them use it. What's going on here, guys? Well, that's definitely interesting because I think uh, doesn't glyphosate kind of operate in a similar way? It's like a chelate in a way and it uh, locks up a certain pathway or something. Well, glyphosate inhibits aromatic acid biosynthesis, which in my opinion is the worst idea in all of agriculture. But aromatic acids, uh, particularly like, you know, when we're talking about how nitrogen is metabolized by plants, aromatic acids happen to represent, because they have this ring structure, that's what the aromatic refers to, they, they have this ring structure at the center, and they happen to be stable because of this ring structure. So a lot of times the stability of this ring structure gives rise to the importance of aromatic amino acids. Human brain, serotonin is made out of aromatic amino acids. Most of our neurotransmitters are made out of aromatic amino acids. Same thing with plants. Most of their hormones uh, have some aromatic amino acid, you know, uh, like basis, you know, for their existence. And again, the, the reason largely for that is the stability for that as these hormones cross between various uh, membranes in the cell and they try to spread chemical messages, they need to be able to resist some of the changes that are 
happening in their in, in their chemical environment, you know. And if your auxins oxidize, for example, you may end up with uh, some signal in the plant that is broken down and it's not properly expressed in the plants, you know, and you have this detrimental effect overall. You know, the breakdown of auxins is a, is a pretty damaging thing for plants overall. So um, if you can prevent the breakdown of the auxins, which fun fact for you, fulvic acids have actually been shown to help. They, they uh, confer some ability to help prevent the breakdown of hormones as they cross between various membranes of the plants. Because again, there's different chemical environments. They may go from a highly or you know, slightly reducing environment to a highly or slightly alkalizing environment. And in those changes, again, if you don't have a stable molecule, that molecule is going to break down. And that's why neurotransmitters are stable. They can handle those changes across cell membranes and across you know, the environments that are damaging and oxidative and put a lot of stress on, you know, otherwise put a lot of stress on compounds. So, um, yeah, a lot of these aromatic acids, uh, they're inhibited by glyphosate, which is a really big problem because, you know, about 20% of the carbon that gets, works its way through plants on a normal day-to-day -day basis may end up uh, going towards creating an aromatic amino acid. Like, that's not a small amount of work. You know, this is a big amount of chemical energy that the plant is undertaking on a daily basis to produce these aromatic amino acids. And the, and the idea that you should spray something on your plants that inhibits that, and furthermore, that you should then feed that to a human and then ask the question, I wonder why serotonin, you know, these people are having depression issues, you know, they have trouble producing serotonin in their brains. And it's like, well, let me tell you something about how aromatic amino acids work. Exactly, you know, uh, it's a pretty bad idea overall. But the mechanism of action overall is actually just a little bit different, you know. Okay, yeah, I just I've heard it is, was uh, originally used as a chelate in the metal pipe that you were talking before, and that's where it kind of spawned that thought. But, mm -hmm. Um, so I know, uh, I guess one question that I I guess has been kind of tossed around and and um, when we're talking about the production of terpenes and whatnot, the idea is, do you think stress is needed or important in a plant's life? Or, or are we going to get the most terpene production by have, maintaining the best plant health in a low stress environment? You know, that, that the answer to that question is a double-edged sword. Um, I will say that on the one side of it, if you just look at like, like the, there, there's a part of me that's very nuts and bolts. I, I like the mechanics of things. I like to just understand the, there's certain physical processes associated with the stuff. You know, if I'm looking at monoterpenes, I know that there's 10 atoms of carbon and 16 of hydrogen. I want to know where that carbon came from. And I want to know where that hydrogen came from and, and what it took to get there. And in the pursuit of growing cannabis plants that are very rich in terpenes and very rich in cannabinoids, you kind of have to understand how all of the building blocks come together, you know, and then identify what are the limiting factors to get those building blocks and then remove those limiting factors, you know? And ultimately it's a double-edged sword because the hydrogen comes from water. And so you want the transpiration rates to be as high as possible for the plants, which on face value would suggest, you know, keep the plants in a low state of stress uh, and, and maybe more, concisely keep them in the right VPD curve, you know? And that's not to say that you shouldn't expose them, expose them to certain types of stress, 
Um, but, you know, just know that it is kind of a double-edged sword. You need to keep the transpiration super high because otherwise you're not going to get the hydrogen that makes up the last 10 to 15-ish percent, I think, of terpenes. Well, 10% of all terpenes and about, let's say, 15% of all cannabinoids because there's some oxygen in there. Um, also comes from water. By the way, so on that one hand, you need water to make your terpenes and cannabinoids. So if you notice your, your water metabolism levels are dropping as a result of your stress, maybe that's a step too far in that direction. And then on the flip side, if you're like, okay, well, let me see what I can do as far as UV lights go. Maybe you want to introduce some UV lights to your plants. That can certainly uh, benefit, uh, you know, terpene and cannabinoid biosynthesis. It certainly helps. Um, you know, but you also have to sort of keep an eye on the level of stress that your plants are being exposed to because if you notice that your photosynthesis is going down because maybe the UV lights are too intense and you're creating oxidative stress that your plants can't deal with, then you're breaking some of these systems that you're trying to introduce that energy to by overexposing them. You know, too much energy is being throughput into the system. But, uh, you know, having said that, let's say you have this ideal circumstance where the type of stress you're exposing the plants to isn't quite enough to get them to slow down on the water uptake. And it's not quite intense enough in terms of like, if you are doing UV light exposure, it's not intense enough to burn them. You know, what you're going to get overall is you may find that, hey, the plants, you know, drink water more rapidly, they metabolize more CO2 out of there, and they're just overall more productive. You know, you can do things like that as far as getting your plants to metabolize nutrients, but it definitely requires a balance in the system. Because that's ultimately what they're trying to achieve at the end of the day is balance. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. And I guess like um, leaf stripping is one of the thoughts I had. And I, in my mind's eye, I'm kind of like, you know, like in our in our metabolism, if we if we fast or whatever, things shift around and change in the way our metabolism works. And I would imagine for a plant, it would be something similar. You could, you know, I mean, like a longer dark cycle or something like that to induce a different kind of metabolism to happen in the plant. And I think ultimately the thought process behind some of these ideas of stress, you know, inducing, but I don't know. Yeah. And, and I will say it's it just part of it is like, there's, you know, growing cannabis is it's both an art and a science. You know, I'd say it's 51% art, 49% science, or it should be in a well balanced system. You never want to get too heavy in the science and you never really want to lose sight getting too esoteric and, and getting too far into it. You know, what I will say from my personal and professional experiences, having been, having been around in the cannabis industry at large for, you know, a very long time now, over a decade, um, what I've seen is that some strains just do respond better to being topped and others just don't like it at all. They like just that main cola being grown out and they don't really care one way or the other. There are certain points where it makes sense to, uh, you know, kind of prune the plants up a little bit and under trim them, them, but as far as like which one's ultimately better, I think it's just like you get six in one hand, you get half a dozen in the other. Yeah, it's got to be experience and plant reaction and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, that- it just depends on like how are you going to shape your plants? You know, if you want to keep them fairly short overall, like if you want to go into flowering when they're 24 to 36 inches tall, you better have a plant that you've trained to be like pretty flat horizontal. That way you can get a lot of heads, you know, off that one plant that goes in. You can still get what, eight to 12 you know, colas off of it. And, you know, from there, it's about light penetration, light intensity. A lot of these guys are going in with smaller plants because 
They know if their plants get three, four feet tall by the time the light penetrates between the top of the plant versus the bottom of the plant, that reduction in light uh, intensity, it, it is going to create some problems overall for stress and for disease and for airflow and all that stuff. So, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to go in with plants that are a little bit more short and squatty and stocky and maybe you've trained them properly so they have a lot of heads. So you're looking for strains that respond well to being topped and you can keep them short, but kind of like branched out and have a lot of lateral growth. And, you know, even if you have thousand watt LEDs that are on plants that are only 36 inches tall, you know that 36 inches, uh, you're getting a lot of light penetration from, from your uh, lights. And so now all of a sudden you, you have a very consistent, very uniform uh, production line happening there. It requires a little training for your plants, requires a little strain selection, maybe some pheno hunting, but that's part of the beauty of the artistic side to it. You know, you apply the science where you can, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to look at this plant and just be like, fuck man, I don't know what, what's going on here. Like, I'm a caveman in a computer lab. This plant is way more advanced than me. Well, I think it's like applying all the physics and math to riding a skateboard versus actually going and riding a skateboard, right? It's like, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, or playing, playing pool. Like you can understand all the, the geometry of that ball, but it's still a matter of doing it, you know what I mean? And, and making it go right. So I do think there's a lot of balance there for sure. And um, one, one thing, uh, I guess one other question that kind of popped in my head is you, you had mentioned, uh, carbon-based nutrients and, and I know like increasing of CO2, the whole idea is we're, we're bringing more carbon into that system. But, um, is that actually the same kind of, uh, the plant can process that the same, like if it's attached to a nutrient and taking it in through the root system or foliarly? versus trying to go through this photosynthesis process? Is that my quite word in that good way? Yeah, it is different. And it just, you know, with, with CO2 that's in the air, uh, keep in mind it's in its oxidized form. And so the gateway that it goes through is rubisco. There's not other enzymes in the plants that will take CO2 out of theirs, at least as far as I'm aware. I mean, maybe, maybe on the off chance there's something like that, I'll say I won't limit or preclude the opportunity. But what I, what I will say is, you know, predominantly rubisco is the most abundant protein on earth and it just has this one job of taking CO2 out of the air. Uh, and how that exactly works gets into this very complex topic about what is photosynthesis and what defines plants versus fungi versus microbes. And you end up kind of realizing like, hey, this thing that plants do, you know, growing above ground and making these leaves that are just giant solar, solar panels, like, bringing up water from the soil and, you know, using the energy of the light to split water molecules, to create proton pumps, to reduce carbon, like all this crazy complex shit. It just revolves around carbon metabolism in plants, you know? And I think the, the issue is not so much the carbon, the issue is more the metabolism of that carbon. And so if you give your plants fully oxidized CO2, you're really asking them to do a lot of work. Just like if you give them fully oxidized nitrates in the form of NO3 or fully oxidized sulfur in the form of sulfates, SO4, like Epsom salts, magnesium sulfate, you're asking them to do a lot of work. And on the flip side, carbon-based nutrients, like what we're making, what they do is they represent a reduced form of carbon, not an oxidized form of carbon. So the amount of chemical work that goes into taking carbon out of the air and converting it has already been done. We're putting that we are like the enzymes. We're like Rubisco enzymes, basically, in plants. You know, we're doing the work for the plants uh, in, or, in order to achieve that. We're looking at some metabolites that may be produced by plants. Um, 
and that, that function to, you know, that happen to be very functional constituents of these pathways, like plants, for instance, produce organic acids. And these organic acids do a phenomenal job of uh, chelating and complexing minerals like potassium and calcium and magnesium. This is why plants produce them. This is how they get used on a normal day-to-day uh, -day basis. So the thought is like, hey, let's work with certain species of plants like hibiscus, for example, produces hydroxy citric acid. And we can use that organic acid to create some kind of organic acid chelates and complexes to then feed minerals in and watch as those organic acid residues get funneled down very specific pathways. So, you know, over time we learn about these plant extracts and plant-based biostimulants. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to like kelp is a really good example because everybody knows, you know, that's used, everybody that's used kelp knows that it can be useful to alleviate some kind of stressors or something like that in the plants. And, you know, they run into a problem, but it doesn't really have much to do with its NPK concentration or anything like that. There's something else. There's some X factor in kelp extracts that's like, well, the plants like really responded and there's no amount of nitrogen you can put on the plants to, to uh, mimic that kind of response or no amount of fertilizer salts. You know, there's something special about kelp. And the, the argument that I would make is that there are other species of plants that also contain molecules that have this wow factor. You know, sometimes it's willow bark. If you want to make your own aspirin or salicylic acid, you can use willow bark and then watch some guys swear it increases resin production and terpene production. There's this noticeable like, wow, something really happened, you know, type of factor associated with it. So, yeah. And dig it, man. Well, hey, we're getting about two hours in and I know you got a busy week with uh, all the internet ones. I did, um, I did kind of want to lead into the topic tomorrow because it is one that I'm interested in and what you're going over. So I, I don't know if you want to kind of give a little bit of a teaser for tomorrow's um, show with Hoda or... Yeah, yeah, definitely come check out tomorrow on FCPO2. We're going to do the uh, Hota Herbs Grow and Tell like we do every Thursday, and it's going to be about sugars. And, um, you know, really what we're going to do is use this as an opportunity to transform what's otherwise kind of a normal and stale conversation about sugars. I think a lot of people look at sugars like carbohydrates, and carbohydrates feed fungi and they feed microbes. And that's typically where it starts and where it ends. And what I would like to do is, is kind of um, transform that a little bit and let people know that there's a very complex universe of things happening with sugars. You can look at a, ver a variety of different types of sugars that are produced by plants, for instance, and different types of polysaccharides, for instance, that are produced not only by plants, but maybe like chitosan technically and chitin fit into this category of, of polysaccharides. Um, and when, what we're looking at doing is creating this understanding, like, let's say on the one hand, we have a map of all of these known structural sugars, like what is a sugar, what's a monosaccharide, what's a disaccharide, you know, oligosaccharides. So we've got this structure map on the one hand, and we know a variety of different species, insects produce polysaccharides, crustaceans do, plants do all this stuff. Okay, so all these different organisms across all these kingdoms. Now on the flip side, what about the function of all of these, you know, like what is the function of chitosan? What is the function of these uh, oligosaccharides produced by like aloe vera you mentioned, for instance, you know, there's certain types of sugars that are produced by aloe vera plants that uh, happen to elicit a particular function. So what we need to do is basically build out this understanding and we'll do it a little bit tomorrow that there's the structure function 
relationship, just like a key fits in, or like a you know, yeah, a key fits into a, a lock and it unlocks something. You need a precise combination of the structure of the sugar in order to affect a particular function. And as again, as I mentioned, the maybe a stark contrast would be to look at how your plants may respond to being treated with molasses versus being treated with another form of a polysaccharide like chitosan. You know, the chitosan or the crustacean shell meal or, or whatever, you know, your source of chitosan is, would function like an elicitor and it would stimulate a stress response in the plants. Versus on the flip side, something like a, still a sugar, but, you know, nevertheless, totally different response molasses may do something completely different in the soil chemistry. It may go down a totally different pathway. You know, the microbes may respond different. The fungi may respond different. The plant may respond different. So it's not enough to just say like, hey, sugars are these simple things that get produced by plants. We have to be a little bit more precise and say, well, what is the structure of that sugar? And if we can categorize its structure, can we determine its function? Is it going to be an elicitor? Is it going to be a food source? Is it going to interface with microbes? Is it going to interface with fungi? Is it going to interface with aphids specifically? Uh, and then furthermore, to add one layer of complexity to the topic tomorrow, we'll look also at how sugars can actually, uh, you know, function within plants as like sunscreens, you know, inside of the nectar of certain species of flowers. We may look at how sugars in themselves, slightly hydrated in the form of nectars, can act like reactive oxygen species scavengers. You know, sugars are antioxidants. They can soak up oxidative stress. They can do all this cool stuff. So I want to kind of, you know, like add a, add a layer of mushrooms or acid into what is otherwise stale sugar, you know, just regular sugar. Oh, no, no, that's not regular sugar, my friend. Wait until you hear tomorrow's conversation. It's like, well, you'll never look at sugar the same. I'm looking forward to it, man, because I, I do like, I mean, like so many things that, that we talk about, I mean, they're so complex, you almost have, we almost grab them in this big, big picture view. And it's so simplified, you know, what I mean, just because it's so complex, we're trying to simplify it so much. But even every step of it is like, in my mind, it's mind, mind boggling, you know, what I'm saying just the whole thought of how everything has to work just so precise, you know, so. I'll be really yeah, you know that's the other thing too is to kind of like trust that these processes and plants no matter how complex some of the stuff may get it's always easy to like understand a couple of basic and simple truths you know everything that plants do is going to revolve around carbon metabolism so like if you ever get lost if you're reading something that's like really complex you know and you don't understand it you can always trust in the default answer like this is going to have something to do with plant figuring out what the what the fuck it's going to do with its carbon supplies or stores, you know, and like this, this ability and really desire to create balance in the system is what plants are really good at achieving. And you can always kind of go back to trusting that it doesn't really matter the specific, everything else is just details as to how it achieves that sense of balance. But that's always been the one thing for me that as I kind of go through and I learn about these various things, you know, a lot of it isn't necessarily, you can't just like read one article about this that like connects you know, the dots for you, like this, the difference between like redox, uh, reduction oxidation versus acid base transfer. Like, you know, you got a lot of these agronomists that uh, go through colleges and institutions and they become trained and they've never even heard of re reduction oxidation potentials in the soil. To them, pH is like this master variable that controls everything when in reality, 
again, the ironic kind of tongue in cheek thing is like, dude, plants are like the name of the game for a plant is all about electron energy. That's where it starts. And it's a very, very important thing. So like, you know, ha having a little bit of sort of humility, like this dualistic sense of understanding this stuff is still being figured out in real time. And as people figure out more and more, there are all of these very complex discussions and conversations to have, but there's also very simple things that you can just kind of trust in. You know, as I mentioned earlier with the example on nitrogen, I don't care. We can get into amino acids and proteins and stuff like that for hours and hours and hours. We can do all this crazy stuff. But in reality, at the end of the day, you give your plants nitrogen, they're going to make one of two proteins, both of which are involved in carbon metabolism. Rubisco and chlorophyll, you know, it's like any, you don't need a PhD to understand that. And then the same thing with like this whole electron transport chain. It's just like light energy gets converted into chemical energy. And then that's used to scrub CO2, like a vacuum cleaner out of the air. You know, it's just like anything past that is just fine details. And that's where it's both fun to kind of get lost in, in the complex details and figuring out how all these nuts and bolts kind of fit together. Uh, but at the same time, when it's like a little bit too much and you have to back out, you got to remember all this stuff is actually uh, so simple that it's oftentimes really easy to, uh, you know, underappreciate at the end of the day, just how simple it is. Like, man, do we really have to complicate it this far? Like, if we do, then let's have another one of these shows, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it does. It can dive real deep. And it is, man. It's just the, the fact thing. So. But I definitely appreciate all the time you spend, Nick, because I, I mean, you've answered a lot of questions for me. And I know you've answered a lot of other questions other people have had, too. And uh, I hope uh, I mean, I hope people do go and check out um, Rooted Leaf Agritech's website. Um, you, did you say there was an Eagle 20 discount code? Yeah, I was kind of chuckling about that because the Eagle 20. <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> so anyway right. it was appropriate you know to, to very, very easy for people to remember eagle 20 and then yeah use that in the cart it'll give you 20 percent off your order no i appreciate that and i'm sure anybody that's interested will definitely appreciate that as well and, uh, so yeah and uh that was the um oh we, we did already tag your instagram too it's under the rooted leaf agritech or whatever so but I definitely appreciate your time, man, and uh, and I appreciate all the people that have been in chat too. We've been—I don't know if you've been following along, but it's kind of like the other ones too. There, seventy. What are there? Seventy, eighty people watching right now. So, a bunch of people hanging out and enjoying it too. So, definitely. Yeah, yeah I haven't been following it unfortunately, but I hope that I did address people's questions in the chats there. And if anybody has other questions, you know, feel free to reach out on Instagram, the Rooted Leaf or send us an email, go to our website, rootedleaf.com. You can read more about the products, what sets us apart a little bit. And then, yeah, like I said, don't forget to use that uh, coupon code Eagle 20, get 20% off. Now, uh, the plan is you're going to be on every Thursday too, right? That's you're kind of been, I know you've been doing that, but I, is that kind of ongoing plan right now to do every Thursday? Yeah, more or less. I mean, part of, you know, part of the way that I look at that is it's a, the, that show is a good opportunity for me to kind of deal with the thoughts that I have that go through my head on a daily basis. You know, the, the product line that we're manufacturing there is a reflection of my relationship with the cannabis plant, which I would, uh, you know, argue, I think I understand this plant really well. And um, people can access the sort of deeper inner thoughts by simply interacting and 
using our products, you know. So the the idea with the um, show that we do on Thursdays is, uh, I hate to kind of sound selfish, but I feel like if I didn't do that, I'd kind of go crazy with all of the thoughts that I have, the complex thoughts about what we're really doing, you know, with some of these products that we're making, with some of the elements that we're transforming into biologically relevant forms for the plant. So it's, it's a nice opportunity for me to have that outlet. And I certainly appreciate the people that kind of come in and, and listen. It helps me, you know, like I said, rationalize some thoughts and uh, stay sane. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. It is. It's, it's crazy how that works. It helps stay sane, get to interact with people. So it's definitely, yeah. it's addicting. I know that for sure. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think a large portion of it comes down to like what we're doing by exploring the use of some of these plant biostimulants isn't there's, there's no, no one I can talk to about it. There's no literature that I can access. Like if someone would have told me 10 years ago that a combination of artichoke and moringa would do the things that we're seeing it do nowadays, like I just, you know, there wouldn't be any way to um, give me like concrete context and reality and there's nothing out there about it. So a lot of it is that we, we have to figure out what we're exploring at the same time that we're exploring it. Like there's no language, there's no words or vocabulary to describe some of the things that we're learning. Like put it this way, the Moringa leaf extract that, that we use to make peak bloom, you know, for guys that are out there and maybe you're doing your own compost teas and things like that, buy some Moringa on Amazon and add that into the mix and, you know, ferment that and, and add that into your recipes and see what it does. I mean, from, you know, my experiences, what I've seen is cannabis plants respond remarkably well to, Moringa leaf extracts and it's one of those things where like uh I don't know until I I develop this exploratory pathway myself like I gotta go through the motions I gotta understand what I'm talking about I have to learn how to communicate these things what we're seeing you know all that stuff so it can be really really difficult to kind of go and try to charter totally unexplored waters like this you know we're using plants that people have barely even heard of coming out of regions that even fewer people have heard of in the world, you know, and a lot of these plants, they're only harvested once a year. So we, with respect to some of their natural cycles, we have to, you know, pay attention and like kind of time things right and, and stock up at the right time and, you know, figure out very complex moving parts, both on the business end of things, but then also on the chemistry end of things where, you know, taking these four dozen species of plants and figuring out how they participate in this process to make cannabis plants more potent or to make, you know, hops plants more potent or grapes produce more sugars so they ha have higher bricks or tomatoes to produce, you know, a higher concentration of sugars to water so they taste better. You know, all this stuff is not possible to just find. So a lot of it, like I said, we're, we're simultaneously writing, you know, the book as we're trying to figure out what exactly is going on. Um, and it's definitely helpful to have people come in and, and tune in and listen. Uh, tomorrow's episode on sugars is going to be Interesting, and I will focus on the artichoke, the fructooligosaccharides that uh, that we've seen come out of artichoke. Because that that one in particular, like that's a that's rocket fuel. That's a turbocharger for soil chemistry for sure, and for phosphorylation pathways in plants. So you know you can add things like sucrose and fructose, and maybe even just take your regular, you know, cane sugar and molasses and all that stuff. But man, you get artichoke in the mix, and like wow, someone added some high octane fuel in, in that compost yeah, that's for sure i mean you it's un, yeah yeah it's crazy it's crazy how the power to weight ratio of something like artichoke can really flip your perspective of what sugars actually are you know 
That's cool, man. I love your excitement about it. So, but I hope you have a good one and I uh, appreciate you taking the time and we'll definitely be uh, hanging out for the one tomorrow night. So, 